Hello, my dear friend. I'm going to do something a little different today. This is going to be chapter one of six of a piece of fan fiction called Squiring the Phoenix. Now, a little bit of a foreword on this. This is Harry Potter fan fiction deep, deep in the weeds. I, for years, have been enjoying Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, a really huge fan fiction that has very little to do with Harry Potter and means a lot to me. Somewhere along the way, someone uh, read Methods of Rationality and was like, but what if this different thing happened, you know, three quarters of the way through the story? And they wrote a spin-off fan fiction called Following the Phoenix. And it was also the length of a big fucking book. I love it very much also. And someone read Following the Phoenix and was like, great, very good, love it, love it. But what happens next? And then they wrote a fortunately very concise story called Squiring the Phoenix. It comes in at six chapters, only 28,000 words. Um, so each chapter should fit in sort of a normal episode for me here. Um, I will try and put in a couple parenthetical asides as I read to fill in gaps, but only really big gaps because otherwise I would get hugely in the weeds. Um, I might try and put a little bit broader strokes fill in the gaps in a PS at the end of each chapter. Um, also, because fan fiction is a very flexible medium, this starts with the most bananas intro ever, um, right after the author's note. But without further ado, let's get this going. Author's note. This is a what happens next metafic of Following the Phoenix, which is a fanfic of Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. Both of those are excellent works. If you haven't read them, you really should. In particular, read Following the Phoenix before reading this, because Squiring the Phoenix talks about what happens after Following the Phoenix ends. The entities spoke in universes. Choose the physical laws and perhaps a base state. Let it expand, perhaps modify some of the random parameters on the fly to generate a particular configuration of matter, energy, probability. Humor could be embodied as life. A hopeful message might be a species mastering fire. Dark humor would be a planet exploding and killing all of the, for the context, highly advanced beings thereon. If one wanted to add a soupçon of hope to the darkness of the humor, perhaps the physical laws might be established in such a way that the resulting brain state of one of those doomed creatures would induce him to send a single escape rocket to carry the last of his race into the void. Elegance was inseparable from the deep structures of one's message. Master poets among the entities could speak elaborate elegiacs using universes containing only a few fundamental forces. The first words of baby talk usually consisted of a universe in which every particle was specified individually, each with its own set of laws. Of course, because of the difference between spoken language and universal information exchange, there is no way that the conversation of the entities can truly be understood by their infinitely distant primitive human ancestors. Still, if one were to can write, create an allegory 
an enormous oversimplification, an enormously oversimplified lie that somehow showed a distant glimmer of the truth, then it might have sounded like this. Tell me a story, Daddy, a scary story. A scary story, huh? Well, okay, I think you're old enough for this one. Once upon a time long, long ago, there was something called death. Harry emerged from Ignatius's resting place feeling shell-shocked. His brain seemed to be grinding its gears, getting nowhere. None of his inner personas were saying a word, being just as flummoxed as he was. How did one react to becoming the student of a wizard who had lived when Charlemagne was born? His stomach growled loudly. Apparently one reacts by being really, really hungry, he thought. Well, what did he say? Hermione demanded. She looked like she was about to vibrate into another dimension from sheer need to know, and from frustration at not being allowed to meet Ignatius herself. Harry's eyes tracked over her, and with great effort he managed to push words through the fog that lay across his mind. He said he'll help. Let's eat. She clenched her fists in frustration, but could tell that Harry wouldn't say any more. She grabbed his hand, and the world burst into fire. Hermione has a phoenix, and you can travel by phoenix fire. When it cleared, they were at the back room of the leaky cauldron. Harry dropped into a chair moments before Dumbledore appeared in a fire flash of his own. The headmaster wasn't quite as overborne as Harry, but he was definitely quiet and thoughtful. Hermione studied them both for a moment, then gave an irritated humph, and went off to ask Tom for some stew. One could not say that, under these circumstances, Hermione Granger waited patiently, but she did at she at least didn't try to ask any questions while they ate. After a few minutes and some food, Harry came back into focus. He looked at his companions consideringly and then turned to Dumbledore. Would you please talk to the Ministry and get things started finding the healer we'll need and any lab resources you think we should have? Dumbledore smiled faintly, recognizing a dismissal when he heard one. With a brief nod to Hermione, he vanished in a puff of phoenix fire. Well? He's alive, Hermione. Alive and still powerful. He read my mind, not just legitimacy. He took everything. He can't move, he can barely speak, but he'll help. He gave me a few hundred scrolls and told me to come back in three months. And yes, he said to bring you. He smiled as Hermione blew out a breath she hadn't realized she was holding. Her foot stopped trying to tap a hole in the floor. So what happens now? she asked. Harry thought about it for a moment. As I see it, we've got two major problems. Curing death, and also dealing with ensuring that the muggle and magical world integrate smoothly. You might not approve of him, but Professor Quirrell... Voldemort? Harry sighed. Voldemort was just a mask he put on, Hermione. Not even a particularly clever mask. It was deliberately built to play into all the tropes of an evil overlord, to induce particular reactions in his enemies. He hesitated. I'm not actually sure who the real man was, but he will always be Professor Quirrell to me. In any case, he was right that a war between muggles and wizards would be an extinction event. 
Right now, here in Britain, things are going smoothly, but the Americans are already pushing to be involved, and they'll expect to be senior partners. The European wizarding community is still being cagey about coming out, waiting to see how it all works here in Britain. The longer that goes on, the less trust muggles will have when they finally do come out. He grimaced. It's a distraction, but an important one. Side note, in the end of the previous fanfiction story, the statute of secrecy in Britain came down, and so the was the ma- the non-magical world has just learned about the existence of magical Britain. Hermione raised her eyebrows. Guiding the single largest merger of two nations in history, muggle and magical, is a distraction? Of course, Harry said, his tone implying that it wasn't the brightest question his brilliant friend had ever asked. The real thing we should all be working on is curing death. We can do it, Hermione. Ignatius and his brothers, they did it. They learned how to keep anyone from dying ever. That's what the cloak does. It keeps your soul in your body no matter what. All we need to do is cure aging and disease. Well, and probably invent ultra-fast wound healing and then figure out how to mass-produce and distribute the cloaks. Hermione sat back, her arms folded across her chest. Oh, is that all? Just cure aging? Well, that should be simple enough. Hermione sighed. Nope, Harry sighed. Look, do you disagree? Is there something else that you think is more important than those two things? He had to give her credit. She thought about it before she answered. Not more important, but as important, she said. If you're really worried about wars of extinction, then we should make sure that can't happen. Disarm all nuclear bombs, maybe? She paused. No, we'd also need to worry about bioweapons. Not sure how to handle that one. Harry nodded thoughtfully. It was, actually, a really good point. I thought about the nukes a while ago, he admitted. I don't think it's practical. If we just went ahead and did it, it would cause its own problems once someone noticed, and we're unlikely to get everyone's permission. What we could do, though, is put a colony on the moon or Mars. Hermione blinked and then tipped her head and thought. Harry could almost see the gears engage inside her brain. I wonder if there's a range limit on Phoenix travel. Zare can't take me anywhere I haven't been, haven't seen, but maybe a picture would be good enough? I know the Freedom and Spirit probe sent back a lot of images. Harry nodded. Right, we'll need to check that. If not, maybe a telescope? I think the Keck is the biggest, but it's been a while since I checked, and... Maybe we could use phoenixes to set up a distributed array of telescopes, turn them into one giant one, so that we could image exoplanets. Oh, or maybe... Hermione held up her hand. That's enough for now, Harry. The politics is the most immediately important issue. As I see it, our current problem is credibility. You may be the boy who lived here in Britain, but to the rest of the world, you're 11. We need someone who's known internationally, someone like Professor Dumbledore. Harry hesitated. Dumbledore was too recently a deathist for him to be entirely comfortable with the man's judgment. Maybe, he said doubtfully. We can look around. Still, don't forget about that space travel thing. I think it's important. Sarah Painter had been working at the UK Space Agency for four years when the world changed. Before that, she'd fought her way through a master's and a PhD, double majoring in electrical engineering and computer science. As a woman in EE and CS, her classmates looked at her as an odd duck. 
That was just a taste of what she faced once she finally wedged her foot in the door at UKSA, the old boys' school of the space agency. She'd been condescended to, not so quietly lusted after, and told both subtly and not so subtly that as a woman, it was really cute and precious that she was trying to do science. She was outside smoking a cigarette, trying to cool down after trying to explain to Charles again that his instrumentation package wasn't the only package on the vehicle. He was drawing four more watts than was allocated to him from the RTG, and he had to pair it back. He nodded, smiled, and told her not to worry, that he'd talk to the guys over in design and get this little snafu straightened out. When the world changes, one might expect a big flash of light, a rumble of thunder, at least a chorus of flying children with harps and halos, right? One did not expect a girl to flash into existence in a pillar of biblical fire with a red gold falcon sitting on her shoulder. The cigarette fell from Sarah's mouth. Hi, the girl said brightly. I was wondering if I could talk to someone about a spacesuit. A witch? Fred said flatly. An actual witch? He eyed the woman sitting across from him askance. She was wearing eye-searingly green robes and a tall black witch's hat straight out of his daughter's last year Halloween costume. He was still trying to decide if she was an SCA -er or a loon. The fact that she just walked into his office, pulled his brass, and started talking just made it more surreal. Dora sighed. Yes, an actual witch. Here. She pulled out her wand, gave it a flick, and said, Wingardium Leviosa. Pointed at Fred's chair, she lifted him up and floated him around a bit before setting him quietly down. A witch. I don't know why you muggles are having so much trouble with this. It's not like it hasn't been all the papers. The boy who lived has been dealing with the queen herself, for heaven's sake. Fred blinked a few times. Okay. He blinked a few more times. I have no idea what you're talking about. But that's fine. Because you're a witch. So, what can I do for you? Harry Potter put together a list of muggles he wanted to invite to London in order to participate in... She pulled a piece of paper from her pocket and read off it. An international symposium with the aim of determining how best to combine magic and science in order to eliminate death, disease, and aging. The wizarding world possesses the ability to bypass known laws of physics. The non-magical world possesses modern technology and the scientific method, which the wizarding world lacks. Together... The two societies can do great things. The symposium will begin Saturday, August 15th, 1992 in London, England, and will run until the 22nd. Travel, room, and board will be provided by the symposium. Intendies, attendees are invited and expected to perform experiments while at the symposium. Research facilities will be provided. Invitees are welcome to bring up to three assistants or co-investigators. Please RSVP no later than August 8th with a list of who will be coming. The bearer of this message will explain your travel. Fred raised his eyebrow. Is this a joke? He asked carefully. How can modern society lack the scientific method? Dora shrugged. I have no idea. The fellow who explained it to me was a very nice muggled chap, a little bit daft. He seemed to think it was some great revelation, but it's just potion making, right? You combine some ingredients, see if it produces anything, and if it doesn't, then you combine some other ingredients. Anyway, I just deliver the messages. See, she straightened up, as though remembering something and started pat patting her pockets. Where did I put that port key? She mumbled. 
Finally, she pulled off her hat and reached in, feeling around. Fred watched in amusement as her arm disappeared up to the shoulder into an 18-inch hat. Aha, here it is, she said, pulling out an envelope and rifling through it. From within the envelope, she produced a piece of gold paper and handed it to him. On the paper were written the words, For Dr. Frederick Blaze, Stanford University, Stanford, California, USA. This is a port key. It will become active on August 15th at 12 p.m. your local time. All parties touching the paper at that time will be transported to London with whatever luggage they are touching. I'm not sure what there is to explain, Dora said with a sniff. I mean, it's right there on the paper, isn't it? Anyway, I'll just be going. Got more stops to make. She vanished with a dull crack. Fred stared at the paper in bemusement, then grabbed for the phone. There wasn't much time, and he'd a lot to arrange. The balcony was just large enough for two people to stretch out without knocking over the telescope. There was more room than usual tonight since Dad was out of town. That was all right, though. They'd watch the Perseids together tomorrow, and tonight would be Joel's alone. He pillowed his hands on his head and lay back to watch the stars wheel above him. Even without the promise of meteors, he could happily watch those sparkling jewels so infinitely far away and wonder what it would be like to travel among them. Joel had wanted to go to the stars since he'd picked up his very first science fiction book at the age of five, The Patchwork Girl by Niven. He'd wanted to be Gil the Arm. Well, no, he wanted to be himself, but be what Gil was a picture of, a hero, a protector, an explorer, a flatlander who became a belter, who piloted his own single ship, who helped shepherd humanity while they passed through the painful birthing process of leaving Earth and growing into the universe. Joel wanted to protect the ship, sheep from the wolves and float in space and see torch ships ride out system carrying a precious cargo of human life. Aunt Mabel and Uncle George could talk about the miracles of Jesus and the miracle. But the miracles that Joel wanted involved riding fire in the sky and sailing an ocean of light. His contemplation on the infinite deeps was broken by motion and light off to his left. He sat up and looked over to see a meteor. No, too slow. Maybe a plane? Awful bright, though, and more red than... Holy crap, it was a bird, and it was on fire! He scrambled to his feet as the phoenix landed on the railing in front of him. It flapped its wings, took a slight step, as though looking for the most comfortable piece of the rail, and stared at him. Its eyes were fire and light and heroism all the power and majesty of the human race and he fell into them plummeting as though from a cliff he fell and fell images flickering past himself space suited and alone in free space deploying something that would provide part of the energy to raise everyone in the world from poverty to luxury no he was dying as his suit ripped on a jutting bolt and all his air dumped into the void and his eyes froze. Himself on the moon, overseeing the robots that were piling moon dust over the first lunar dome. 
In two months, the dome would be complete, and he and the fire-light Hope Brother Warrior Pure beside him would begin transporting colonists to their new home. Himself dying of hypoxia from a suit failure. Himself appearing in fire and light like an angel of old to rescue three engineers trapped in a lunar mine collapse. Himself being crushed in a new collapse. The question was soundless and infinite, as though the entire universe echoed through him, demanding his answer. Would he step forward, live his dreams, and lift humanity from its cradle? Yes, he gasped, choking on joyful tears. Oh God, yes! Be well, my friend. This concludes chapter one of six.